Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Hey, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to look at the first six verses this morning as we continue our journey. We are getting close to finishing out Luke. What a wonderful time. You know, one of the things that is all the rage today is conspiracy theories. Anyone here just love enjoying conspiracy theories? Yes, there's a few of you. You know who you are. You follow them. You're part of, the, you're part of all the boards and things of that nature. Conspiracy theories and those that are betrayals. Think of Brutus, a friend of Julius Caesar, who led a conspiracy in a group to assassinate Julius Caesar by stabbing him 23 times. Benedict Arnold betrayed the U.S. during the Revolutionary War. Lee Harvey Oswald shot President Kennedy, though many believe he was not alone. There's, that conspiracy theory is one that will never go away. These men participated in conspiracies and betrayals, all for different reasons, right? There's patriotism, there's greed, there's political gain, all sorts of reasons why people have conspiracies and betrayals. Betrayal is one of the most horrible actions one can take against another. Many of us have been on the receiving end of a friend, acquaintance, or a family that has harmed another. What would it take for you to befriend or betray a friend, betray an acquaintance, betray a stranger? For many of us, it would take much. For others, it almost becomes second nature. The world, though, as we know it, does not look favorably on betrayal and conspiracy theories. Yet as we learn today, even the Son of God faces this awful deed. After warning the disciples about the birth pains that the world is going to have to go through, through conflicts and wars and all sorts of world suffering, he also warns them that the birth pains will include the suffering of the church, persecution from the, church, or from the world, not only by the world, but even from their own relatives and families who will turn against them because of Christ. Jesus declared that Jerusalem, along with the temple, will be destroyed. Both of them are the center of the Jewish identity. And uh, Jesus' answer is when these things will be, goes from bad to worse as he shares with them the birth pains and then what happens. Yet, with that devastating prediction, Jesus offered them a ray of hope, a confident expectation that there would be a promise that he would return in glory and power to offer retribution to those that persecuted, betrayed, and misused and rejected Christ, and those that would receive him, he would then offer reward. We now come to Luke's record of, of suffering and death as we come to Luke chapter 22. We saw the journey into Jerusalem. Now it's about the time where Jesus' death is very, very near. And as it draws near, the scene scene shifts from the temple to the area of Jerusalem as a whole. The emphasis shifts from Jesus' teaching to now events surrounding his death. Luke is now reaching his conclusion of the orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that we began with. Luke wrote his gospel to instruct 
and encouraged Theophilus so that he might have certainty about the things he had learned and been taught about Jesus Christ. It has now been 33 years after the angels proclaimed to the shepherds in the field, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great or good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Son of God, who came in the flesh to redeem God's children, to rescue the perishing, to heal the sick, and to set at liberty those who were captive to sin, is now approaching the end of his earthly ministry. In this last section of Luke's Gospel, 22-24, we're going to see the twin themes of suffering, but also triumph, as Luke records Jesus' suffering, that will consist of betrayal and denial from his disciples, injustice and mockery during his trial before the Sanhedrin and Pilate, brutality and shame in his crucifixion, triumphantly raising from the dead, but also his ascension in heaven. It is Wednesday. It's the final week of Christ's ministry here on earth. Two days before his crucifixion, Jesus is preaching and teaching openly in the temple and around Jerusalem. But as we come to Luke chapter 22, our passage today, we're going to see two sets of hardened hearts that seek to silence Jesus permanently. So with that, look at Luke chapter 22. We're going to read the first two verses to start off. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Father, we're about to read a passage that is just devastating to read. How those who should have stood up, applauded, and accepted your claim to Messiahship turn against you. How a friend betrays you. In this passage, we are not Jesus. In this passage, we are the religious leaders. We are Judas. Open up our minds and hearts as we read this passage. Make it new. It's a familiar passage. It's a familiar scene. Lord, you wrote it for our prophet to tell us what is right to what is wrong, how to stay right, how to get right. So be with us as we do this hard work. And Lord, may your spirit have free reign. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, the first heart that's exposed in this passage is the jealousy of the religious leaders that lead them to plot to kill Jesus. So the first heart is the jealousy, the heart of the religious leaders of jealousy, of envy. Now, Luke gives us two time markers of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This is where we are in this time. Passover is a Jewish festival that commemorates the passing over of the Hebrew homes by the angel of the Lord who killed all the firstborn of Egypt. We think of this now as Easter, the last plague against Pharaoh. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread followed the Passover and lasted for seven days. So for many, even though it's two events, typically they would put the two together because it was full eight days of celebration. And it's fitting that Jesus' crucifixion occurs during these high holy days. 
In less than 48 hours, Jesus will have his blood poured out and have his flesh beaten and torn. Earlier, John the Baptist declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he saw Jesus coming towards him. The religious leaders have been looking forward to an opportunity to kill Jesus for some time. After healing of the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, you might recall that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, their enemies, against Jesus of how to destroy them. Now, Jesus is located in Jerusalem. Now that he's located in Jerusalem, not far away Galilee, where most of his ministry takes place, they renew and intensify their desires. However, the time of the Passover and the feast are underway. The preparations are becoming are, are being done. Jerusalem is now filled with travelers and worshipers, including most likely a large number of people from Galilee, where Jesus was highly regarded and respected and well thought of. So they see this crowd, they say, we can't do this. This crowd will just, will, will go berserk if we try to kill Jesus. They've already seen how the people responded to him as he entered the city several days of what you and I call Palm Sunday when they were claiming him as king, son of David. They were publicly in fear of a riot if they moved against him. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would, please, to John chapter 11. And we're, again, I always want to encourage you to bring your Bible. Uh, you may have a tablet, you may have a phone, but a Bible is something you can write in. It's something that's physical. So I encourage you, if you need a Bible, please let me know. I'd love to give you a, a copy of God's Word. But turn to John chapter 11. The Apostle John writes of the religious leader's dilemma after Jesus had raised Lazarus the dead several weeks prior to this event. In John chapter 11, look at verse 44, just to get the mindset of the religious leaders. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Hey, hey, have you heard? Have you heard what Jesus did? So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They could not stop him. They could not uh, deal with the issue. They could not deny it. They go and say, if we let him go on like this, healing people, making people's better lives better, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So in their mind, they had to stop Jesus because he was coming so popular that they were afraid that the Jews were going to rise up, make Jesus king, and Caesar from Rome was going to see that as an insurrection and then come and destroy the city, which would happen in 40 years after Jesus rose from the grave. But not yet. So you can see their mindset. There's jealousy. There's fear. They must silence him at all cost. Now, the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread are sequential events, as I said earlier. Passover celebrates the night, the night of Israel's uh, exodus from Egypt, while the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates the exodus journey and the beginning of the harvest season. It was a time of pilgrimage as the Jews from around the world would travel for these great feasts. So Jerusalem is filled. Some think that there's maybe a million or more people in the Jerusalem area there to attend the pilgrimage, to attend the Passover and the feast. 
So this is no, this, this thought that they had of a riot could very well happen. The religious leaders are determined and committed to killing Jesus. However, they are prevented from doing so openly due to his popularity with the people. We read that after entering victoriously into Jeff, they really wanted to kill him. Why? Because everyone was hanging on his words. Like the cowards they were, they sent out spies to find a way to accuse Jesus of something that would harm his message. So there was a conspiracy afoot. Let's send someone out. However, they failed each time. And we've read some of these uh, times of where they tried. They sent out scribes and lawyers and even political officials. But Jesus, as you remember, answered wisely, leading them to sulk away in silence, and they dare not ask him any more questions. Their scheme failed as Jesus' responses just amazed the crowd more. However, they finally found one way. As one of Jesus' own disciples agreed to conspire with them, to hand over Jesus at a time that would be convenient, away from the people. Read silent with, with, with me in Luke chapter 22. Look at verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, speaking of Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So now we see the second heart. The first heart was the jealousy and the envy of the religious leaders. Now we see the second heart exposed as Judas volunteers to betray Christ. Judas was the original 12, but Jesus desired to train. One who had spent several years with Jesus listening, learning, and serving as a close disciple chose to betray Christ. In Mark chapter 3, we read that Jesus went upon the mountain early in his ministry, and he called out to them those who he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what we find from here is this included Judas Iscariot. He walked, he talked, he ate, he ministered with Jesus. I've got it on. So, it's on here. Okay. Are you hearing me okay? All right. Thank you. The interesting tidbit about Judas Iscariot is his name. Judas was a popular Jewish name. It, meant, it was a Greek spelling, spelling for the Greek name Judah, which means praise. So many people were named uh, Judas or Judah. It was praise. We think of Judah, the, the tribe of Judah. But Iscariot actually means man of Kerioth or of the assassins. There's a group of people who were known for being assassins. He was called, mentored, and trusted by Christ, yet Jesus knew who Judas was, and he knew Judas's plan. Jesus informed his disciples that there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those who, who did or who he from the beginning who those were who did not believe. 
and who it was that would betray him. Jesus then answered, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So there's a conspiracy convenience. Conspiracy of convenience. Judas is the convenient solution to their problem. Who else is better to get Jesus alone away from the crowd than Judas? His covetousness, his greed, leads him to betray the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. Now, the biggest question is why? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Was it, was it so much for greed? Or was it his social concern for the poor? Remember, when the, when the lady poured out the expensive perfume, he complained about, hey, why are we doing this? Shouldn't we sell this money and give it to the poor? But then there's an editorial note that it wasn't because of his desire to help the poor, but because he used to embezzle money from the common purse. In Matthew 26, when Judas goes before him, he says, what will you give me if I deliver? So he's doing a manipulation here. He's doing a thing in which he's asking for something in return. Or was it the devil? In John chapter 6, we see, did I not choose you to have one of you is the devil? Though we cannot determine the exact motivation of, heart, of his heart, it does seem that his own covetousness, his own greed, along with the influence of Satan, led him to this horrible betrayal. In John chapter 13, 2, we read that during the Last Supper, the devil already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Now, I want to take a moment to consider Luke's assertion that Satan entered in Judah. Did you, did you see that entering into Judas? What are we to make of the statement that Satan entered Judas? John MacArthur points out, you'll see it here on the monitor, that Judas was possessed by Satan himself. We're talking more than just influence here, but we're actually talking about a possession. Satan evidently gained direct control over Judas on two occasions. Once before Judas arranged to betrayal with the chief priest, and again during the Last Supper immediately before the betrayal was actually carried out. So with that, understand Satan is the adversary of God. He's the dragon in the story of the Bible. Again, the prince slays the dragon and or slays the dragon and wins the girl. Here we're finding out who that dragon is. He is a created angelic being who rebelled against Yahweh, his creator, leading an un unnumbered host of angels with him, those we now refer to as demons. He is powerful, he is dangerous and mysterious. Scripture informs us that he has or he will only possess three created beings in history. The serpent in the garden, Judas, the topic of our conversation today, and then in the final, the final Antichrist at the end times. His first appearance, speaking of Satan, the adversary of God, is around the eighth day of creation. You see it here in the monitor in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So we see Satan trying to cause doubt. And then Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat all the days of your life. So at first we think, well, maybe that's just a, a serpent. It's just a snake. But it's not only just a physical snake as you and I know it, though it might have been different, constituted physically. 
But he then he goes on to give us how we know that there's something else most going on. Where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her, her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Martin Luther states it this way. Let us therefore establish in the first place that the serpent is the real serpent, but one that has been entered and taken over by Satan. The last book of the Bible describes him as the great dragon. Again, looking here in the monitor in Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent. Who's the ancient serpent? The one from the garden. Who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of this whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation 22, it says that he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. For a thousand years. So we see that they are one and the same. The serpent itself was possessed. Paul also warns that he will inhabit the Antichrist in the days of the great tribulation. In 2 Thessalonians, we read that the coming one, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, Satan and his demons can influence and possess, though let me say this, they cannot possess. The Christian, they cannot possess those who are indwelt by the Spirit. He desires to destroy all that God has created. He works at increasing wickedness, spreading evil, destroying lives, and paralyzing the Christian. He, though, is a defeated foe, though given power for a time to wreak havoc during the birth pains of this present age, one day he will be judged and condemned the lake of fire. I believe we have it here. Revelation 20.10. Very small. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But yet here as we read in Luke 22, Satan is at the height of his power. He is involved in this conspiracy influencing and possessing those that he needs to destroy the Son of God. Now let me make no mistake, Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. He's tempted him more than once, at least at least this three times that we see here earlier in Luke and in the Gospels. He is ready now to, to put the final blows to, to, to quench or to quench the Father's plan. Lastly, if we read, lastly, we read in Luke, going back to Luke 22, verse 6 that Judas consented and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. That's exactly what the religious leaders were looking. Get Jesus away from the crowd. In Matthew's account, we read that one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief and it says that he says, what will you give me? And he says, from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Christ. So he spends the next day and a half, or however long it was, looking for a way to betray Jesus, to let them know exactly where Jesus was and who was with him. With that, a conspiracy of convenience, infused by the cowardice and covetousness, commenced. A plan is put in motion to betray Jesus at a time and place where he is most vulnerable and alone. Judas is the perfect patsy 
and he plays his part to perfection. I'm sorry, you know I have to alliterate. But once again, you and I read this passage and we say, okay, we know this story. This, we know this is what happens. So how is this profitable for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness? How does this help me to become a stronger in the Lord, to know more about Christ? Well, once again, we see the providence of God and human choices work hand in hand to accomplish the sovereign purposes of God. As you and I read this passage, our thoughts and emotions are angered at Judas's choices. He is a friend. He is a fellow servant. He is a disciple of Christ. It seems that not one of the other disciples were even aware of Judas's three years of deception. They had no idea. Even when they asked Jesus at the, at the supper, we'll see in the next week or so, who is it that's going to betray you? And he tells Judas, hey, go do what you have to do. They still did not realize that Judas was the one who was going to betray them. He seemed to be one of them. He had cast out demons. He had healed the sick. He had preached the good news of the kingdom. But you and I realize at this moment that Judas is not truly a genuine follower of Christ. His actions, his attitudes show that he is not a follower of Christ. He is a deceiver, a betrayer. Yet at the same time, we must understand that this was God's sovereign plan and a result of human choices. Those two always work together in tandem to complete what God has decreed. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Paul declared here on the monitor, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite, and fore, uh, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See what's in bold. It's the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But yet, underlined, we see that it was also by the hands of lawless men, both working together to accomplish the redemption. In this conspiracy of convenience, we learn several things. Number one is that the timing of this event was intended by God. Hence why Luke tells us, during the Passover, during the Feast of the Unleavened. Even the timing was intended by God. Why was it during those days? Why was it when Jesus was 33, or about the age of 33? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is that Passover lamb. So when would not be the better time than on the day of the Passover? Thomas Schreiner notes that it was God's intention for Jesus to be sacrificed during the Passover since Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. Again, you know the story. The children of Israel are in Exodus. They're in Egypt. And he says, I have one last plague. It's going to be the death of the firstborn. But he says, if you put the blood of the lamb on your door sill or your door, top of your door and on both sides, he says, when I see that blood... I will pass over you, and the angel of death will not destroy the firstborn in that home. There's an old hymn that I love. When I see the blood, it sings of this wonderful great word picture. It's here on the monitor. Christ our Redeemer died on the cross. 
He died for the sinner. He paid all of his due. Sprinkle your soul with the blood of the lamb and I will pass, will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. So in the same thing, the Bible tells us that you and I have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And when God sees that, he passes over to us. He gives us his forgiveness. Death no longer reigns in our house. So the timing was intended by God. This was the fullness of time. But also we see that the characters were decreed and destined by God as well. The characters, those involved, the the place was all decreed and destined by God. The stage is now set. All the necessary actors are in place. The time has approached. The conditions are right for God's predetermined plan to offer his son as the final sacrifice. The, the apostle Peter, after the ascension of Christ, was in prison, and he's beaten for preaching the gospel. And after his release, he declares this here in the monitor. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Take a moment and just look at that. Each and every person was there destined for that time. They were not born haphazardly. This was the time. All of it was taking place. Like a direct director putting all the actors in the right place on the stage. He is moving them together so they are there at the right time and their lines are cued and ready to go. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John chapter 17 with me. Even the action of Judas the betrayer was preordained. In the passage that we're about to look at, Jesus is praying to the Father. This is the night that he would be betrayed. And in verse 6 of John chapter 7, Jesus prays this. I have manifested or made known your name, he's speaking of the Father, to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word, speaking of the disciples. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now he's speaking of the disciples, those who the Father gave him, the twelve men. He says, they've learned from me. They now know who I am. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are, and I am come to you, Holy Father, so keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. But now here we are in verse 12. While I was with them, speaking of the three years, I have kept them in their name, which you have given me. I have guarded these men. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Even Judas himself was created, born, provided for so that he may betray Jesus. 
Afterwards, the Holy Spirit gave insight to the remaining apostles after Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1. When Peter says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. David, hundreds of years, probably what, eight, nine hundred, maybe a century before Christ, prophesied about Judas. They understood that Judas Iscariot fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 41 9, where it says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Yet, even though Judas was chosen, created, and possessed by Satan, Judas was fully responsible for his actions. Jesus said, the Son of Man will go just as is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So this is just a terrible story altogether. The religious leaders' hearts were hardened with hate, malice, jealousy, envy. It will lead many men and women to do awful things, to conspire to kill someone else. Judas' heart was filled with covetous greed. He wanted what he could not have. He desired that which he did not have. And again, that led him to betray and deceive. Same for you and I to desire that which God has not given us, to not be satisfied with the promises of God, to desire that which God has said no to, has led many of us to betray people we care about, friends, family, maybe even our own profession of faith. Judas's story then teaches us to guard against small, gradual failings. Let me say it once again. Judas's story teaches us to guard against small, gradual fallings or failings that gain strength and power in our lives that can open the door to more deadly influences. See, we don't open the door and say, I'm going to do this terrible sin, whatever it may be in Scripture. No, we, we do it bit by bit. Many of you say, yeah, I know that my life is like that. I didn't plan to be here. I don't even know how I got here. All I know is I'm here and I don't know how to get out. I don't even know where the door was when I came in, so how can I find a way out? Our lives are a series of small, gradual steps of failings, of sin, of disobedience, and it leads us to a place where we're seeing things destroyed. We're seeing our lives marked by things that we cannot, scars, things that we don't want. His story is also a great reminder that appearances can be deceiving. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, speaking of the day when, he's, when they're coming before him, he says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Judas can say that. Judas performed miracles. Judas cast out demons. Judas stood before the crowds and shared the gospel of the good kingdom. 
But Jesus says, I will say plainly to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So here's the challenge. I want to encourage you Christians. It's our door to sin and destruction and paralyzation. It's one small step at a time. It's one compromise here. It's one compromise there. It's one bad decision after another. It's being influenced by others. Being led astray by the counsel of those who call us friends. But yet it leads to destruction. Then there's others who profess Christ. We say we're Christians, but yet their whole lives, their demeanor, their heart, their will, their thoughts, their choices show that they are not. You love me. You obey my commandments. Let us not be deceived, for God is not mocked. God knows the intentions of your heart. You can manipulate me. You can, you can fool me. You can fool others. But you cannot fool God. Scripture says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteousness, you who test the hearts and the minds, O oh, righteous God. Solomon writes, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Jeremiah says, the Lord searches the hearts and he tests the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his, of his deeds. What are the fruits of the deeds, of the choices that you're making in your life? Are they glorifying to God? Are they good? Are they destructive? Are they hurting? Psalms 26 says this, prove me, O Lord, try me and test my heart. In my mind, how many of you today have the courage and the boldness and the character to pray that prayer? Prove me. Try me. Test my heart. I would dare say many of us would not. But Paul says, test and examine yourself to see whether in your faith, as we get ready here to take communion, this is going to be a big thing. The take of it says that you've repented and put your trust in Christ, that you're making decisions and living your life according to God's word. To deceive and say, I'm going to take it just to keep up appearances. The Bible says, will put your soul in danger, notwithstanding your very life. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, remarked this. You'll see it here. He says, beware of no man more than yourself. What are you afraid of? The Bible says, beware of no man more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. It's your own heart that will betray you. Let it not be so. Let it not be so. Let me warn you and tell you here, Satan seeks to destroy you. He seeks to destroy your marriage. He destroy, seeks to destroy your family. He seeks to paralyze you, to destroy your joy, to take away all those things that God has given you. He wants you to doubt the goodness of God. Let it not be so. Do not be a Judas in your own heart. As we come to participate together in observing the Lord's Supper, may we gratefully give praise to the Father who sent the Son to rescue us from the curse of sin and death.
May we give thanks to the Son, Jesus Christ, who is obedient to the Father, and then also to the Holy Spirit who regenerates our hearts and sanctifies us. Let us examine and test our hearts so that we may be genuine followers of Christ in both word and deed to the glory of God and for good of ourselves and for those that we love. I'd like to end with 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Judas disregarded this. He was not a good soldier. He got entangled in civilian pursuits, a conspiracy of convenience, one which destroyed his very soul and betraying Christ. Let it not be so for you and I, but let us be good soldiers, ready to live out that which God has called us to do. Let me ask you just every head bowed, every eye closed real quick, as I'm going to ask Randy to make his way up. I just want you to take a moment just to pause, consider this passage. Then I'm going to ask you to pray. Father, how do you want me to respond to this message? Is there a way in which I'm betraying my profession of faith? Father, am I, am I deceived of myself? Is covetousness, is greed, is a desire to have what you have not given? Is that ruling my life? So repent, please. Turn towards him. For he is life. He is our Passover lamb. And may he pass over you. Randy, would you come? Close us in prayer. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.